Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey guys, this is Zach Twomley once again, thanking you for listening to When Diplomacy Fails podcast. I would like to remind you that When Diplomacy Fails is a member of the Agora Podcast Network. This month, we are promoting David Crowther's History of England podcast, which, if you somehow haven't heard of it yet, you should definitely go and check it out. David Crowther's podcast is actually quite interesting, because if you want to find out where I got my big break, so to speak, it was on the History of England. That's right. Strange as it may seem now, considering how famous I now am in the podcasting world, before I was known by anyone... I approached David with the idea of doing a guest episode for his show to promote the release of mine, and it paid off. I got a good increase in downloads, and I got some notoriety, and my episode is forever there in the airways for you to look at and laugh at. David is a great guy, he does a great podcast, and he helped me out when I really needed it, so I hope you'll help him out by checking out the History of England. Another bit of housekeeping, Zach Twomley is going to Cambridge to do a PhD in history in October 2016. If you're listening to this in the future, then hopefully it's all gone according to plan, but if you're listening to this on the day that it's released, or soon after, etc., then I would really encourage you to support me. I don't just mean monetarily, though that would be nice, I also mean any kind of messages of encouragement, let me know how long you've been listening, that kind of thing, so that I kind of build up a repertoire of support, which really does help when you're doing something like this, when you take a risk and you put yourself out there into the academic world, and, well, I guess you could say this is the first step towards my professional career, because as professionals, when diplomacy fails is, it unfortunately can't be my career. Coming to that issue of being a career, though, when diplomacy fails very recently, thanks to the funding drive I've been launching for you guys, has paid dividends, and I mean that literally, I couldn't believe how generous you guys have been for the past few weeks. I mean, when did I release that State of the Podcast address? I'd say early February. Since then, I've made a good bit of money, and I wasn't wasn't going to say how much I made, because I didn't feel like that was kind of, I don't know, is that against podcast etiquette or something? I don't really mind, but, and then I decided, why not? Why don't I just tell you? So, so far... Get your ears ready for this. So far, I am making, on the base of my monthly donations, the subscriptions you sign up to in the corner, and you choose basically a, a type of 
amount you want to give each month and it gives you a cool name such as ambassador or intern etc through those monthly subscription plans i'm making 45 euro a month which is about 50 dollars a month which is very very nice it's all from separate people some people are giving two euro fifty some people giving a fiver and a few you heroes are giving a tenner as well but it's all super appreciated since i launched the uh funding drive though or appeal or begging or whatever you want to call it I've actually made 700 euro, which I really think I'm just going to clap you guys right now because that is amazing. Absolutely amazing. 700 freaking euro. That's like $800 or like £600 or whatever it is, but it's still amazing. I mean, one cynical person could say, but Zach, you need like 83,000 euro to go to Cambridge. And like, shut up. Okay, that's that's the story for another day. Right now, I can just bask in the fact that you guys have parted with your hard-earned money to the extent that I'm 700 euro richer than I was before I started that appeal. And that is crazy. That is actually insane when I think about it, which I do a lot. I must confess I'm checking my emails a lot more than I used to to see if I've got any notifications of donations. And nine times out of ten, there's something there, someone telling me that I've gotten a donation. So it's all... I really can't thank you guys enough I expected there to be some kind of response, not in an arrogant way, but just because I know how crazily generous you guys are, but I never expected this, good grief, 700 euro so far, and some of it, some of it's from, like, the perfectly wonderful donations of 20 euro, which of course is amazing, but I've gotten some crazy numbers, guys, I've gotten a, I've got a 100 euro donation from one guy, you know who you are, Mr. Wing, and that was insane, like 100 euro, really? <laughs> to me are you sure more recently got a 91 euro donation which i think comes from the fact that it's the exchange rate for dollars or something like that and that's also super appreciated so thank you very much michael mccormick i just i i can't really put into words how much it all means to me how you guys parted with your hard-earned money for me i really do appreciate it and i hope that i can justify your confidence in me and make you all as proud of me as Well, you should be, really, because you've invested so much time, and now you've invested money in me, too. So, thank you so much. Now, (laughs) that's not to say that any further donations would not go amiss. Uh, If you have any books in your pocket that you just can't seem to get rid of, if that jangling of change, if that's jangling, is that the right word? I don't know. If that is just really getting on your nerves and you just can't stand the sight of your money anymore, then hey wdfpodcast.blogspot.ie you can head on over there click the donate button in the corner if you like to send a one-off donation or you can join the leagues of fans that are contributing a small amount every month because the way i look at it is if you're giving me a one-off donation you might think oh i don't want to really give him like a hundred dollars or whatever it is because that's a crazy amount of money but hey two dollars and fifty cents a month or whatever that translates to in euros two euro fifty a month i don't know anyway if i give a small amount every month to when diplomacy fails i'm not going to notice but if like 20 people do that then that's crazy and i can almost feel like that i'm having a regular income from podcasting which if you ask any podcaster is a podcaster's dream so yeah thank you guys so much um this rambling monologue is basically to let you know how it's all going because thanks to a recent email from a curious listener i realized that i haven't actually let you know how this donation funding drive has gone so there you go it's been a very big success we have a while to go yet with the money but i have a good feeling about it and i really do appreciate everything you've given me so far i can't thank you enough and one could say i can't ask you for any more but hey i will anyway because it doesn't cost me anything to ask so thank you guys so much and 
I almost don't feel the show was worth it now because you've given me so much money. Like, But still, uh, thank you so much. I'm speechless, as you can probably tell, so it's a good thing I have a script to read from. Anyway, I really hope you guys will enjoy the show. So let's get back to that. And apologies again for the rambling monologue. Thanks so much for all you guys do. You're the best. When Diplomacy Fails presents Britain Goes to War An in-depth examination of the British Empire from the closing stages of the Victorian era to the opening phases of the First World War and beyond. Section 2. Background. Part A. The Golden Age. Chapter 20. It had been an eventful day for Britain's governing apparatus. The Houses of Parliament and the Commons and Lords both saw their share of debate and postulating, as ministers in government and opposition alike voiced their approval or displeasure at the foreign policy line which the government had up to that point pursued. In the background, the cabinet ministers desperately tried to present a united front for the public and world to see, and sought continuously to establish that no divisions existed within their ranks. It was a hard sell to an opposition well fed by rumours that all was not as well as it seemed in Disraeli's paradise, but Disraeli was occupied himself by other missions, namely the one to persuade the opposition that his policy line had not been a hesitant or even gasp a timid policy. Disraeli was consumed with the idea that Britain had to maintain a solid front against all foreign challenges. He repeated this endlessly to his colleagues and was backed up by Queen Victoria in this as well. It would not have been accurate to state that the 16-man cabinet was split down the middle over how to deal with the crisis in the East and the apparently insurmountable Russian menace, But what Disraeli wanted above all was to underline the fact that he and his peers had endeavoured tirelessly to lead the country with confidence, consistency and class. These three C's were a formula I just made up, but still, I feel they encapsulate well what Disraeli aimed for. He feared the spectacle of being criticised for not having acted forcefully enough or determined enough to prevent or anticipate this or that eventuality. And thus, when such a situation seemed as though it was coming into view, as as Disraeli felt it was during the House of Lords debates on the 17th of January 1878, he could feel his back pushing up against the wall he had created in his own subconscious. He battled out of this impression with passion, aggression and fire against his challenger and, I suppose, accuser, the Liberal leader in the House of Lords, the Earl of Granville. It is possible that Granville didn't expect such an impassioned response from the Prime Minister when he made the veiled accusations, but as we learned from Disraeli in the past, above all, what he feared was perceptions. Perceptions that Britain was weak, perceptions that the government was weak, perceptions that he was weak. To escape such perceptions, Disraeli felt the need to shatter them with clarity and fire, which of course can appear somewhat amusing to us since this normally takes the form of him denying the precise truth of what Granville had asserted. Last week, for instance, we saw him deny the existence of any cabinet divisions as well as claim no hesitancy was present in the creation of British foreign policy, when of course the reverse was true. 
Disraeli's cabinet contained more divisions than many had in living memory, and creating a united foreign policy line was so difficult, and ministers thus hesitated to make one for this very reason. The truth, it seemed, did not matter to Disraeli when more important things were on the line. So let's get back to the middle of his rebuke to Granville in the House of Lords on the 17th of January, 1878. Having already delivered a strong defence of his policy mixed with a casual massaging of the truth, Prime Minister Benjamin Disraeli continued to defend what he saw as the essential tenets of his policy to his direct opposition rival. Considering that the Liberal Party at this time was without an effective leader, with William Gladstone hovering in the wings following years of retirement, and Lord Hartington and the Earl of Granville running the party as a duo, the war of words here was an important one. Continuing where we left off from last time, Disraeli in the following speech quoted himself in an effort to reinforce the claim that he had always supported and continued to support the position of conditional British neutrality and that owing to his cabinets and his own desire to maintain this consistency in foreign policy, such a neutrality would stay in place unless some unforeseen eventuality threatened it. Disraeli said, Now, your lordships will agree that if our policy was vacillating, if it was ambiguous, if it was deserving of suspicion, the noble Earl and his friends had their legitimate and constitutional opportunity of bringing these circumstances under consideration of Parliament. They did not do so, and therefore we have a right to assume, if it were for only the convenience of debate and to promote the expeditious conduct of public business, that, having such an opportunity and not only losing it, but forfeiting it, willingly forfeiting it, the noble Earl and his friends could not impute any misconduct on that account, at least until after the proroguing of Parliament. Well, what happened? Nearly the last day, nearly the last hour before the proroguing, though I do not like extracts, I will read to your lordships a short extract of what I said on that occasion. It was on the motion, afterwards withdrawn, of a noble earl, upon the subject of this war. It was the opinion of that noble earl that we should take some active interference in the war. I find that I use these words, the extract is from the authentic source, and it is literally correct. I said that... With regard to our policy, I will only say that, having been clearly expressed, it has been consistently maintained. Without entering into an unnecessary discussion, I may remind your lordships that when this cruel and destructive war began, Her Majesty's government announced that they would adopt a policy of strict but conditional neutrality. And there I end the quote. The condition was that the interests of the country should not be imperiled. Disraeli's argument that having willfully watched government policy go on without much protest, the opposition could not now suddenly declare that they had been against such a policy from the beginning, was effective, but the Prime Minister was clearly less interested in defending the policies of the past than he was in planning for the policy of the future. He said, I think it is enough for us to say that Her Majesty's government, pursuing the same policy which they have pursued from the first, and having brought about the commencement of negotiations which, I trust, may be successful in their result, but which may not be successful, that they have in these circumstances a ground upon which they can fairly appeal to Parliament and say, Our policy is before you, it has been before you, we have not swerved from it in the slightest degree, but it is still our unshaken opinion that there are British interests which deeply concern the welfare of this country. Interests which are sources of its wealth and securities for its strength, and which may be endangered if this contest goes on. 
and if you approve our policy, if you approve of a policy of neutrality which shall be conditional upon guarding these interests, we appeal to you with confidence that you will at least give us the means by which that guardianship may be upheld. Again, the Prime Minister then felt the need to address the issue of isolation, which in itself was a divisive debate, since it could either infer positive or negative connotations, as we saw last time. There was a reason it was referred to as splendid isolation by statesmen since this era, but when it was criticised, as it often was, by both conservative and liberal alike, it was on the grounds that Britain would have to work harder to get its way in the world, rather than being in the position to lean on its allies. In a stinging attack in which he defended with passion his own policy line and claimed an absence of any real isolation, Disraeli apparently repudiated the charges which Granville laid against him. He said, I hope that in what I am about to refer to I do not misrepresent the noble Earl, who is always accusing me of misrepresenting him, when I say that the noble Earl deplored the state of isolation in which Her Majesty's government has, by their management of affairs, placed this country. Well, that, my lords, is a very serious charge, and no doubt if it were a true one, it would be more than a serious charge for us. It would be a great injury to the country. But I think that on such a subject, we are bound to examine and scrutinise with great impartiality before we adopt a conclusion so adverse, not only to the abilities and influence of Her Majesty's government, but which, if true, would be injurious to Her Majesty's realm. I do not see, I confess, at the best, that the noble Earl, or those that share with the noble Earl his opinions on the subject of isolation, I do not see that he has on this subject of isolation in any way stated facts to establish his opinion. The noble Earl, when he touched upon this subject, went back again to that unfortunate Berlin Memorandum. It appears that the rejection of the Berlin Memorandum was the commencement and operative cause of our isolation. Now, in the first place never wishing to have to mention the Berlin Memorandum again, I will say that that memorandum was a document which ceased to exist because England refused to sanction it. That does not look like isolation or want of influence. Well then, if there be any act which can prove national concert, if there be any arrangement in the world which can demonstrate national concert clearly and completely, surely it is a conference. And what happens? Why, the very power which you say has become isolated in consequence of its refusing to sanction the Berlin Memorandum is the only power that not only joins a conference of the great powers, but proposes that conference. Is that a want of influence? Is that isolation? Well, if you really take a general view of what has occurred in all these transactions, the only power that has done anything, and it has done much, has been England. England, which you say is so isolated... England, whose conduct defeated the Berlin Memorandum. England, whose suggestion called into existence the conference. I should like to know whose influence it was that obtained the armistice for Serbia. It was isolated England. It was this country in a state of isolation which affected that which could not be otherwise affected. And let me also ask you this. Which is the power which at this moment has secured the commencement of a hope of peace for Europe? Why mighty Germany and anxious Austria and France husbanding her resources and the other great powers have all declined, when the port appealed to them to interfere in a task then beset with difficulties, and which might be considered, judging from their language, as hopeless. Yet isolated England did interfere, and the moment she interfered we had the commencement of these negotiations. No doubt the negotiations are most difficult. Probably more difficult negotiations never were commenced. But they are real negotiations, which I have expressed my hope may lead, after no doubt surmounting many obstacles, to a suspension of this terrible conflict. 
But whether they are successful or not, what is the power that originated them? What power had fanned the flames of hope, even when it was expiring and at this moment has brought about a state of affairs which engages the thoughts of all the European cabinets? Why, it was the power which you say is isolated. It is not England that is isolated. No, my lords, that is not our position, and in the attack which the noble Earl made, he has represented and re-echoed the attacks which have been made elsewhere, partly, no doubt, from ignorance, partly, no doubt, from thoughtlessness, but in a great degree by means of mechanical agitation. The noble Earl who represents this opinion has, in my mind, completely failed in the charge which he wishes to establish against Her Majesty's government. In an important clarification after this cutting response, Disraeli went on to distinguish between essentially the good and bad forms of isolation. In a piece which has been quoted many times over by historians looking to discern why isolation could be both a bad and good thing, Disraeli said, There are two kinds of isolation. There is an isolation that comes from decay, that comes from infirmity. That is a sign of impending insignificance and all those symptoms which denote a failing or an expiring state. But there is also isolation for a state which may arise from qualities very different, from self-confidence, from extreme energy, from abounding resources, and above all, from the inspiration of a great cause. In such a way was this country previously isolated. In the early years of this century it was isolated. But how and why was it isolated? It was isolated at the commencement of this century because, among the craven communities of Europe, it alone asserted and vindicated the cause of national independence. It was a great cause which our forefathers then maintained, and, however depressed trade may be, whatever may be the circumstances brought forward to enervate the national mind, whatever may be the considerations introduced to prevent you from acting as your forefathers had acted, it may be your duty to follow in their footsteps. If that cause were again at stake, if there were a power that threatened the peace of the world with a predominance fatal to public liberty and national independence, I feel confident that your lordships will not be afraid of the charge of being isolated if you stood alone in maintaining such a cause and in fighting for such precious instincts. After such a rousing clarification, designed no doubt to evoke passionate and proud memories of the Napoleonic Wars, Disraeli concluded with a total attack on the Earl of Granville's stance and indicated that in the future he well expected the inner courage and spirit of the nation and its statesmen to shine through in defence of British honour, interests and security a challenge which effectively laid down the gauntlet for the uncertain weeks ahead. Disraeli said, My lords, I rose after the noble Earl of Granville to vindicate the government, of which I am a member from the charges which I think are unfounded. I do not think that the noble Earl has proved that in calling Parliament together we took a step which was unwise or unnecessary. I do not think the noble Earl has proved that the policy of the government with regard to affairs in Eastern Europe has ever been inconsistent from that which we have declared again and again. It has never swerved from our original conception and determination as to the course which we ought to pursue. Nor do I think that the noble Earl has been successful in his sneers against British interests. I believe that this country thoroughly understands what British interests are, and that it will support the government of the day if they find it necessary to take measures to secure those interests. I do not think the noble Earl has at all successfully One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. 
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Established his position that this country is in a state of isolation. It is in a state of which it has no need to be ashamed. I believe that in the councils of Europe, the influence of this country is felt and greatly felt. May God grant that in the negotiations which are now proceeding, that influence may increase. If it does increase, I will say on the part of the government, and divided in our councils though they are said to be, I feel that I am expressing their unanimous opinion, their unanimous sentiment, that that influence will be exercised for the greatest interests of humanity. It will be exercised for the termination of these hostilities. It will be exercised in every way for the procuring of a peace which will be stable and enduring. But if we are called upon to vindicate our rights and to vindicate the interests of this country, if our present hopes and prospects are baffled, if there be circumstances which demand that we should appeal to Parliament again and again for means to vindicate the honour of the realm and to preserve and maintain the interests of the Empire, I am sure that Her Majesty's Government will never hesitate to take that course. Disraeli was probably feeling quite good about himself when he sat down to huge applause and noises of approval from both sides of the benches, but his victory was not as complete as it appeared. Standing to respond to his popular speech was John George Edward Henry Douglas Sutherland Campbell, the ninth Duke of Argyll, who will be referring to as the Duke of Argyll if you don't mind, a member of one of the most important families Scotland has ever produced, perhaps the most important. At one point during the civil wars of the mid-17th century, the Duke of Argyll at that time effectively ruled Scotland in Cromwell's name, and was executed by the restored Charles II in the process. Our Duke of Argyll was actually married to Queen Victoria's fourth daughter, Louisa, an event which hadn't happened since 1815 when a peer married Mary Tudor. In time, Argyll would eventually become renowned for his position as Governor-General of Canada, a position which the burgeoning Dominion was very proud of, since it meant that he had to bring his royal wife with him. The intrigue of that court was something to behold in Canada, and eventually the two figures settled in quite well to their jobs and Canadian society. While Argyle set about the business of the day, which effectively involved naming everything that wasn't nailed down in Canada after his wife, Canada was where Argyle would make his name after 1880, but in 1878 here he was merely a rich liberal peer among a sea of rich liberal peers, though this didn't stop him challenging what Disraeli had just said. Argyle said, I confess I listened to the speech of the noble Earl opposite with great disappointment. It was very able, it was very brilliant, 
but I think I am not wrong in saying it was nothing to the purpose. It seemed to have been intended by him as a reply to some anticipated, bitter, narrow-minded personal attack upon the government from my noble friend behind me, the Earl of Granville, and he could not change the programme of his speech to suit the observations which were really made. My noble friend behind me, with that suavity of manner and acuteness of intellect which characterise him, said a few things, but surely in no offensive manner, surely not in any aggrieved party spirit, indicating that he and his friends had not perfect confidence in the consistency of the government. And what did the noble earl opposite do? He spent half an hour in answering questions, which were never made. He spoke with contempt of the press, but it was to the press he was looking when he made that speech. And it was from the press that he had gathered the charges he answered, and not from the speech of the noble earl of Granville, which had been delivered, in fact for the purpose of affording the government an opportunity to make those statements upon great questions of public policy, which your lordships have a right to expect when we are called together at a great crisis in the history of empire. We expected to hear from the Prime Minister some definite declaration of what he expected to do, but the Prime Minister has only filled our ears with the east wind. He has answered imaginary attacks and told us nothing. The noble Earl's principal answer was directed to the accusation of disunity in the Cabinet. Now, I have had some experience of stories of disunity in cabinets, and know what they are worth as stories generally. I never believe them, but the stories of disunion in the present cabinet are not of the usual kind. I am almost ashamed of having been led into these observations, but I have been led into them by the extraordinary speech which the noble earl at the head of the government has just delivered. If there have been rumours of disunion in the cabinet, the government themselves are responsible for them. Argyle then made a series of criticisms based on the government's presentation of Russia as Europe's boogeyman when Turkey remained so oppressive herself. Argyle insisted that because Russia had established the Dardanelles Straits as a European interest, Britain could not increase her armaments in order to defend it, since all European powers would surely have an interest in defending such a place. Furthermore, reminding the Lords present of the brutality and immorality of Turkish rule, an act which evoked the memory of the atrocitarian movements that Disraeli was so unfond of, Argyle questioned whether, as realistic and moral statesman, the very administration of the Ottoman Empire should even be preserved, since its rotten bureaucracy was destined to collapse, at any rate, in the near future. Argyle said, I now come to the issue of Constantinople. With regard to that city, Lord Darby's words in the dispatch of May 1877 are these... Quote, that the vast importance of Constantinople, whether in military, political, or commercial point of view, is too well understood to require explanation. It is therefore simply necessary to point out that Her Majesty's government are not prepared to witness with indifference the passing into other hands than those of its present processors, a capital holding so commanding a position. And here I end the quote. What do these words mean? Do they mean that, however much the Turks may resist the arms of Russia, Russia is to be precluded taking possession of Constantinople as a military and temporary measure? Or do they mean that the ultimate possession of Constantinople is a European question? If the latter, I heartily concur. If the former, a grave question arises in respect of the policy of the British government. It is most inexpedient that the question whether we should enter into a war, solitary and isolated, should be placed in the hands of Turkish pashas. Nothing could be more injurious to the honour and interest of England, but that will infallibly be the result if we make the military occupation of Constantinople a question of peace or war. When we talk of Constantinople, 
remaining in the hands of its present possessors, we had better recognise the fact that no part of European Turkey will long remain in the hands of its present possessors, if by that description we mean the present governing power. The noble mover of the address, the Earl of Warrencliffe, gave us an abstract of the state of the feeling of the people of this country on the Eastern Question, an abstract which, though inadequate and imperfect, was by no means unfair. In that abstract he admitted the general detestation of the ruling classes of Turkey, but it is these classes that constitute the Turkish government, and is it not for our interests and honour that we should say that Constantinople or any territory should remain in their hands? On the contrary, it is directly in the teeth of them. Therefore I must make a grave exception in regard to both Constantinople and the Dardanelles in agreeing to the address in reply to the speech. What Argyle followed this up with was nothing less than a stunning exhibition of liberal views. The values and principles for foreign policy which liberal lords were declared to possess were placed here by Argyle in stark contrast to the selfish conservatives. In addition, Turkey was declared unsavable and Russia was lauded as commendable for having intervened against the Ottomans in the interests of the Ottomans' chafing populations. The atrocitarian movement, it seemed, had not quite died out in the minds of the liberal lords. Argyle accompanied his speech with a breathtaking history lesson aimed at vindicating the actions of the Russian government, and you can judge for yourselves its success. He said, A great deal has been said about the motives of Russia. I apprehend the motives of Russia are very much like the motives of other people, very mixed motives. But if the motives of Russia are purely selfish, they at least cannot be worse than the motives which you yourselves have avowed. What have we heard tonight? An elaborate defence of selfish motives from the noble Earl at the head of this government. He not only said that it was British interests we cared for, but he went further and put the doctrine in a still grosser form. He spoke of material interests, money interests, the interests of commerce and wealth. But as to moral interests, we had nothing to do with them. I appeal to noble lords opposite to say what they would think and feel if Russia were to avow such sentiments. Let us suppose that there should be a great public dinner at St. Petersburg, given by the Lord Mayor, if there is one, and Prince Gorchikov, to have attended and declared that Russia would look after Russian interests and no other, meaning her material interests. What would be said here by the press of this country and by the members of the government? I will not describe what would be said. But all that, in such a case, would be said of Russia ought to be said of you, and you deserve it, for a baser doctrine I have never heard maintained in Parliament than that has been said by the Prime Minister, that we ought to look only to our own selfish and material interests and to nothing else, as if there were no moral interests concerned, or as if we had nothing to do with it. The noble Earl implied suspicion of Russia. It is no use concealing it, everyone had it, more or less. The main motive of Russia in undertaking the war was the impulse of the movement on the part of the population, which even the government of Russia could not suppress. The motive of sympathy with their co-religionists in the east of Europe. That was a very natural movement, taking mankind as they are, a most powerful motive. Why go out of your way to discover others? The desire to deliver their co-religionists who were suffering under the most debasing tyranny was one of the most powerful sentiments. And that was the main motive of Russia to this war. Placed as Russia was, they could not, like Her Majesty's ministers, put off the consideration of the condition of the subject populations of Turkey for an indefinite period, waiting for the hopeless reform of that most execrable government. I say that Russia, under the circumstances, was justified in her action, 
and if at this moment there be a prospect of freedom to the populations of the provinces of Turkey, it will be due to that feeling on the part of Russia, which, call it sentimental, humanitarian, illogical, has been nevertheless one of the most powerful motive forces in the history of the world. But then I hear it said that the freedom of nations ought never to be bought by foreign interference. My lords, is this forgetfulness or is it hypocrisy? Do we not remember our own case? Do we not remember that day when one of our harbours was filled with the ships of the Netherlands and a foreign deliverer landed on the shores of England? Now, with regard to what should be done in the future, if I thought my humble advice would induce Her Majesty's government to alter their course in any respect, I should implore them to do this. To recognise facts and to act upon them. Do not let them deceive themselves and talk nonsense about national independence as applied to Turkey. Turkey as an independent power is gone, is gone never to recover. And why is Turkey gone? Because she deserved to die. I am not ashamed to own humanitarian sentiments. I think the welfare of several millions of men is a British interest. As one of the survivors of the cabinet that waged the Crimean War, I will never cease to witness in this house that we have undertaken obligations to the subject populations of Turkey which we can never repudiate. We have bound ourselves to take some charge of their interest in the extreme circumstances that have arisen with regard to the government of Turkey. If we believe in nothing else, let us least believe in that new gospel, the doctrine of Darwin and the survival of the fittest. In that process, beneficent in its ultimate results but often terrible in its operation, by which nature eliminates everything which is too bad to live, we cannot prevent its destruction. Let us not attempt to prop up the phantom of the Turkish Empire. Rather, let us devise some scheme for the just government of its subject populations. Following this, the energised Duke of Argyle sat down and awaited a response. Up stood Salisbury, the Secretary for India, and he prepared to defend with rigour against the challenge Argyle had just posed. Salisbury addressed the idea that newspapers could be conservative or liberal, and sarcastically cut into Argyle's claim that such conservative papers seemed to almost be written by the very government ministers that they praised, by establishing that the authors of such parties which approved of government policy remained anonymous, and so Salisbury and others would not be able to disprove such accusations either way. The issue of the media was a developing one, which had become more important as the war intensified and opinions became split between conservative and liberal. Since I have always been in the habit of describing papers as conservative, such as The Times, or liberal, such as The Manchester Guardian, I found it striking that Salisbury denied such classifications existed, and that newspapers were run instead by independent journalists who simply wrote with their heart. By 1914, it would have been immensely difficult to state such an opinion as fact, but the 19th century, along with everything else it was known for, was one in which the printed media exploded in importance and significance for the common man as well as the statesman. Salisbury was adamant that newspapers chose to support policy based on that journalist's principles, rather than pre-established loyalties to this or that party. But considering the classifications history has subsequently handed down to various newspapers, it would seem as though he was wrong. Whatever his position on the newspaper issue, Salisbury did claim himself to feel similarly to Argyle regarding the issue of the Turks' subject populations. Salisbury said, The Turks undoubtedly have made bad use of their opportunities. I have little fault to find with the terms of condemnation used by noble lords opposite towards that power. I heartily and deeply sympathise with the subject races in the East, but I do differ from the noble duke in this. 
I believe that this war has accumulated into nine short months more misery than would result from generations of Turkish government. True it is that war is the only ultimate cure for obstinate misgovernment, but war is righteous or unrighteous, according as it is opportune or inopportune. And when there is no power to direct to a speedy and successful issue, and when the crimes or vices against which it is directed are not so great as to produce utter paralysis and recklessness, then the remedy is often a hundred times worse than the disease. The noble duke is not satisfied without driving the Turks from every inch of ground in Europe. Salisbury claimed that the opposition relied too much on rumour in printed articles, rather than the facts contained in the government's published Blue Books, which contained the most recent diplomatic correspondence. In trying to disprove what Argyle and others had asserted, that Britain's policy seemed to be the propping up of the Ottoman Empire, whatever the circumstances and however bad the Turks treated their subjects, Salisbury put forward the evidence which the Liberals could find if they so wished, that the Turks had been repeatedly warned against acting aggressively at home and then asking for British help once they did so. Salisbury followed this up by posing a clearly conservative viewpoint of his own, which was combined with an effective and withering attack on the declared liberal foreign policy line. Salisbury said, Whatever may happen to the Turkish Empire, its geographical peculiarities and conditions, and all the political results which flow from them, will remain the same. And British interests, as we have defined them in the noble Earl's dispatch, must, as well as the Turk, occupy a very considerable position in the consideration of Her Majesty's government. The duties of humanity I am very far from disputing. Indeed, I claim for this government that we have made the strongest possible exertions to produce good government and peace for the Christian populations of the East. But I am not prepared to accept the new gospel which I understand is preached, that it is our business, for the sake of any populations whatsoever, to disregard the trusts which the people of this country and our sovereign have placed in our hands. In a winding narrative in which Salisbury drew from his first-hand experiences of the Constantinople Conference, it was stated that, though the Russian government did not possess any greater ambitions or worse morals than any other state, they could become a victim of a corrupting influence such as the one which, at present, was suspected to lurk within the Russian court, that of pan-Slavism and its associated evils. Salisbury said, The noble Duke of Argyle spoke a good deal about the motives of the Emperor of Russia. Now I entirely concur with him in repudiating the very unwise accusations which are often meant against the Russian government and emperor. I entirely concur with him in thinking that the Russian government is much like other governments, and that when you know the motives which most accuate human beings in their position, you probably know their motives also. I dare say there have been unscrupulous advisers in Russia. There have been unscrupulous advisers in all countries, but I certainly must express my opinion and I do so in the full consciousness that it may draw upon myself some of the censure to which the noble duke referred, that during the conference of Constantinople the Emperor Alexander himself was actuated by a sincere, an anxious, and almost tormenting desire for peace, and that he accepted conditions which, from his point of view, I should have thought would have been the very extreme conditions that an autocrat could have accepted under the peculiar circumstances of the case and considering the strong religious and race feelings around him. When the conference had passed away, the antipathies of race and the antagonism of creed were aroused, and they well drive all governments, and an autocratic government quicker than others, with a force which no individual can resist. 
I have felt it my duty to say this, not only because I acquiesce in all that has been said about the motives of the Russian government, but also in order to indicate that when we ask Parliament to give us the power of taking precautions in case our interests are threatened, we are not doing so because we despair of peace. On the contrary, we hope that the humane instincts and the high prudence of the Emperor of Russia will overcome the influences by which he is undoubtedly surrounded, and that an honourable peace may put a stop to this terrible and desolating war. It is not in any spirit of despair of peace that we shall ask you, if occasion arise, to help us to take the necessary precautions. I am not going to follow the noble duke into a discussion of each individual interest, or to define more narrowly than we have done already the precise circumstances upon which those interests depend. The noble duke knows as well as I do that I should be departing from my duty if I did so. But we feel that the best intentions, and the most powerful will, have not always been able to control the caprice of armies into the flush of victory. Into these matters, however, I do not wish to enter more closely. I do not wish to examine what exactly are the circumstances under which the interests which have been defined will be threatened. But I know that the wave of war is approaching closely to the localities with which those interests are connected. And before the Parliament of England lies this alternative. If it does not trust the present government, let it provide itself with the government which it does trust. But if it does trust the present government, let it confide to it the proper means for effectively performing the great duty which its confidence has imposed upon it. With that closing statement on the House of Lords debates over the Queen's speech, Salisbury had delivered an open challenge to the opposition and explained in the most Disraelian-like terms why the requested increases in armaments were necessary. The eventuality which may come about, that of a war between Russia and Britain, was by no means an uncertainty, and to prevent and guard against it, Salisbury insisted that, while hoping for peace, British statesmen should do all in their power to prepare for the worst. Furthermore, Salisbury challenged the opposition to propose a better solution if they disagreed with the policy line to such a great extent, but insisted that if the opposition did feel as though they could trust Disraeli's administration, then they would provide it with the means to properly rule as a governing party needs to rule for the interests of the country to be preserved. The day had been a tough one for ministers of both the opposition and within government. Acidic criticisms of government policy had been aired, perhaps with more volume than Disraeli had yet experienced, while it was clear that the rumours of cabinet disunity were rampant and in serious need of checking. By the time the sun had set on the eventful day of the 17th of January 1878, the Prime Minister and his cabinet were preparing once again to advance their latest scheme in the East, which they believed would pose a stiff foil to Russia but which Lord Derby, from his sickbed, insisted would only aggravate the situation and bring about the very war which Conservative ministers had so vehemently denied that they wanted to the opposition, to the British public and to the world. We shall pick up that story next week. I hope you enjoyed this closer look at the context of parliamentary discussion, following many episodes of close examination of Disraeli, Gladstone and Company. It was, I hope you'll agree, a nice and useful change, but next week we'll be back to normal, so I hope you'll join us then. Thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. 
And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 